Today, today I want to speak to you from the subject, Fully Alive. That's the title of my message, Fully Alive. About two years ago, I preached this message, and it was called The Value of Doubt. And the whole, like, premise of the message was just to encourage people that, like, doubting, like, like doubts are not an inherent sin. Like, doubting is actually okay. In fact, what Scripture even tells us is that, that people wrestle with doubts and that we could actually bring our doubts to God. He gets to help us through them. And one of the lines in this message was that doubt is not a sign of weakness. Rather, it's an opportunity for growth. It's an opportunity for strength, that if we carry our doubts to God, that we will actually grow in our faith as a result. It's pretty cool. And, and, and so in this message, I, I addressed what I felt like at the time were the three biggest reasons that people doubt Christianity and doubt the message of Jesus and whether or not they even want to follow Jesus. And the, the first thing was really a distrust in scripture. A lot of people wrestle with this idea of like, how can I live by a book that's thousands of years old? Uh, another one was um, advances in science. Has science basically outdone with the need for Christianity and religion? And then the other one was uh, the problem of suffering. I think that's something that we all at one point in another have to reconcile is is how why and how you know is there a loving God and yet there's still suffering in the world so I talked about all those things and and I I'll be honest I felt pretty good about the message like I was I was super excited I was pretty fired up afterwards I get off the stage and I was hoping that there would be like a line of people like hey such a great message changed my life thanks so much and yet there was this one guy who came up to me right away and he said Caleb it's a good message, but you missed something. And it's a pretty big thing. I was like, dang, you know, like, enlighten me. Like, what is it? I was a little taken back by the comment. And he looks at me, he goes, well, I just, so many of my friends think that if we say yes to following Jesus, then we're saying yes to living a boring life. We're saying yes to living a boring life. And then he looked at me, he goes, and to be honest, I don't even know how to answer him. Like, I don't even know what to say, because I struggle with that too. And his comment, like, pierced me. In fact, for the next few weeks, it was all I could think about. I kept thinking about it. And, and the reality is, I know what Scripture says about it. John 10.10 is one of my favorite verses, and it's Jesus. He's talking to his disciples, and this is what Jesus says. He says, the thief, who is our adversary, the devil, he says, the thief only comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy, but I came so that you could have life and have life to the fullest. The, the Greek word that Jesus uses here is the word called zoe. And, and what it means is not to just be merely alive or barely alive or your heart's just beating in kind of a physical sense. It really means to be fully alive. It's a very holistic kind of understanding that you're alive not only physically but emotionally and mentally and spiritually. You're actually experiencing vitality and growth and celebration and excitement in your relationship with God. And what's incredible is the Psalms uh, use a similar type of uh, imagery and, and language when they describe what it's like to actually follow God as well. Psalm 16, beginning in verse 9, says this. It says, my heart celebrates and my mood is joyous. Yes, my whole being will rest in safety because you won't abandon my life to the grave. And verse 11 says this, that you teach me the way of life and in your presence is total celebration. I'm going to say that one line again because it's just so good. In God's presence is total celebration. And then the, the, the psalm ends with beautiful things are always in your right hand. And then there's another psalm, Psalm 36, beginning in verse 7, that says this, Your faithful love is priceless, God. Humanity finds refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the bounty of your house. You let them drink from your river of pure joy, of pure joy. My prayer is that our reputation, even as a church, and not just Mission Church, but the church at large, the global church, is that we would be able to actually show the world around us that in, like, really, participating in following Jesus, participating in Christianity, is really drinking from a river of pure joy, is actually living within a context of celebration, of being fully alive. What's incredible here is that the, the Hebrew word that the Psalms use for life here is kai. 
and it also refers to being fully alive. In fact, most of the references that Kai has used in the Old Testament and the Hebrew Scriptures is actually referring to botanical growth. So basically looking outside and seeing the way the trees grow and, and flowers grow and they blossom and they come in the springtime and they're just exploding with life. To be blunt, that is how we were created to live. We were created for joy. We were created for peace. We were created for freedom. We were created for love. We were created for vitality and growth, for intimacy with God and connection with others. We were created to be fully alive. God didn't step into human history in the person of Jesus so that we could drudge through a meaningless existence. He did not step into human history so that we could suffer through the monotony of an empty and boring life. He stepped into human history so that he could bring us to life, so that we could be fully alive inside. Saying yes to Jesus is not saying yes to a boring life. It's saying yes to the most exciting, joy-filled, adventure-laden life possible. It's saying yes to being fully alive. So that's what the scriptures say. So then we got to ask the question again, why does Christianity still feel so boring sometimes? Why does following Jesus feel boring at times? I think, in my opinion, it's really because of one of four misunderstandings. I think there are four common misunderstandings that circulate our culture today that actually convince us that following Jesus would be boring, that would trap us. It, it, it holds us in bondage to boredom, and it keeps us from living fully alive as we were intended to live. So I want to unpack each of these misunderstandings. We're going to travel through them quickly, so stick with me. But here's the first misunderstanding I think that we have that convinces us that following Jesus isn't saying yes to being fully alive. Here's the first one. I think we misunderstand Jesus. I think so many of us, so many people today, misunderstand Jesus, both who he is and how he feels about us. There was this influential pastor and writer in the 1950s. His name is A.W. Tozer. And he famously said this. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I'll say that again. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I think there's a degree of truth to that statement, so I want us to just think about it for a second. What comes into your mind when you think about God? What comes into your mind when you picture Jesus? How do you picture him? How do you picture God? You see, what's, what's so interesting to me is in pop culture, there's this idea that Jesus is just this stoic, lifeless, boring personality. Like, I, I can't even describe how many times I've seen him depicted in art or even in film, and he's like barely smiling. And, and, and to be honest, what it does is people take that image of Jesus, and they project it on God, and they, they, they believe this lie that Jesus is just this stoic, lifeless, unapproachable, otherworldly type of figure. But man, one second in the scriptures, you start reading the scriptures, you realize Jesus was not static, Jesus was dynamic, Jesus was magnetic. Have you ever noticed that every single person in the scriptures was attracted to Jesus? Like everyone was attracted to Jesus. Everybody wanted to be around Jesus. The disciples were obsessed with Jesus. Sinners were enamored by Jesus. Even the religious people were jealous of Jesus. They wanted to be Jesus. Every single person wanted a piece of Jesus. And if I could be real, that doesn't happen to judgmental people. It doesn't happen to boring people. It doesn't happen to people that are suffering and, and drudging through the monotony of life. It happens to people who are fully alive. You find somebody who's fully alive, and you'll find a whole bunch of people that want to be around that person. And that's what we experience in the life of Jesus. 
One of his most famous interactions was with this man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus heard that Jesus was in town. The story is recorded in Luke uh, chapter 19. And Zacchaeus um, hears that Jesus is in town. Uh, scriptures tells us that he's a short person. <laughs> uh, short in stature is what the, the Greek says. And so he climbs up a tree so that he can actually see Jesus. Jesus walks by him. And I love the boldness in Jesus. He literally just invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house for dinner. He goes, Zacchaeus, come to your house tonight. And I love what the scriptures say. In verse 6, it says that Zacchaeus received him with joy. Like, I picture him just jumping out of the tree, like, let's do this. Like, I'm so excited. And then we know how the story goes, is that one encounter, one dinner with Jesus changed Zacchaeus' life forever. But one of the most pivotal details in this story is Zacchaeus' occupation. We're told that he is the chief tax collector. The chief tax collector, which implies two things. So here's the first thing, is that Zacchaeus was corrupt. He was a thief. In fact, back in those days, the tax system in the Roman Empire, in the Roman era, was super corrupt. People had the liberty to basically steal as much as they wanted. There wasn't really a set organization to it. And so people just helped themselves. And so, so Zacchaeus was corrupt. He was known as a thief. He had that kind of reputation. But the second thing is that we know that Zacchaeus was ballin'. Like, he was doing really, really well. He's the guy with the perfect house, the closet full of Gucci shoes. I mean, the, the, the guy that, like, everybody envied and, and, and hated at the same time. Like, that was Zacchaeus. And I say all of that because I really think that Zacchaeus, I, I don't picture him being needy or desperate. I don't picture him going, oh, my gosh, everything just sucks. I need something different. And like, I, I think he was probably pretty content. But you know what? Jesus was just that magnetic. He wanted to see Jesus. He had heard about the way that Jesus talked. He had heard about the way that Jesus lived. He had heard about this guy named Jesus, and he wanted a piece of him. And again, as I said before, one encounter with Jesus changed his life forever. He realized that everything that he had been chasing after his entire life was nothing compared to what Jesus offered. It's incredible. But I think one more thing remains needing to be said on this particular point. As much as I like the whole A.W. Tozer concept that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us, I, I think that's only half true. Uh, I think it's only half of it. In fact, C.S. Lewis, he had his own thoughts on it, and this is what he says. He goes, I read in a book the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks about us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance except insofar as it is related to how he thinks about us. How God thinks about us, infinitely more important. So I'm going to ask you one more question. What do you think comes into God's mind when he thinks about you? What comes into God's mind when he thinks about you? When I was 10 years old, I decided to go for a bike ride. My, my parents were at work, and so I just, it was like an hour or two before they were going to be home, and so I, I, I kind of dug through the garage. My bike was kind of hidden in a whole bunch of things, and I pulled out this bike, and the bike was, it was pretty janky, if I could just use that term. I mean, it had like these neon flames on the side of it that were like peeling off, and the handlebars were coming apart, and like even the, the edges of the handlebars were all rusty and like jagged and sharp, so if you touched the bike, you needed a tetanus shot. Like it was like one of those kind of experiences, and so I pulled out the bike the garage. I was like, oh, I'm going to do a couple laps around the neighborhood. And a couple things that you need to know before I kind of go on and finish this story is that one, our house was built in a slant. So the driveway was like this. It was just, it was completely slanted. And then two, parked inside of the driveway was this beautiful Jeep Cherokee. And my dad was trying to sell it. And not only was he trying to sell it, but he actually had a couple that was coming over to our house later that day to look at it. They were interested in buying it. And so I get on this bike, 10 year old kid. 
I was not in shape, I'll just put it that way, okay, and not very coordinated, and I get on this bike, and I start stumbling, I start kind of wobbling, and all of a sudden, my front tire does this, and I head straight to the Jeep, and the edges, like the, the, the ragged edges of the handlebars dig into the Jeep paint, and then all of my momentum is sliding my way down through the Jeep, and it li- literally looks like somebody took a, a car keys and just keyed the entire, like, side of this Jeep, and so I fall over on the back of the driveway, I'm looking up at the Jeep, like, oh my gosh, I ruined my life, like, I'm never going to be able to live this down my entire life, I'm going to be, you know, it's going to spend, I mean, you're a 10-year-old kid, so you're just blowing this thing out of proportion, too. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, my whole life, I'm done. I'm done with life. I have three options. One, I could just run to a buddy's house and just camp out forever, never come back. Two, lock the door, pretend I'm not there. Three, I could come clean when my dad comes, but I don't know what would happen. Am I going to get grounded? I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm having all these decisions racing through my mind, trying to figure out what I'm going to do. And my dad comes home about an hour later, and I just, I run up to him. I, I, I ran up to him. I was just tearing up. I was crying like a baby. I was like, Dad, I, I messed everything up. And he looks at me and he goes, okay, well, let's, let's go check it out. And we go out to the driveway and he looks at the Jeep that it's pretty bad. Like, I'm not going to try to like underplay it. It's pretty bad. And he looks at the Jeep. He looks at me, looks back at the Jeep and he takes his hand and he just puts it over my shoulder. And he brings me in close. And I'll never forget what he said. He goes, it's okay, son. I love you. And I looked up at him and was like, and, you know, like, what's coming next, you know, but, dot, 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 and he goes, no, I, just, I love you, it's okay, and, and we went back in the house, and that was the last time I ever heard about it, it was like, it was crazy, so let me ask you one more question, if you were standing face to face with God right now, what do you think he would say to you, what would he say to you, because in my experience, I think so many of us assume that he'd whip out this long list of everything that we've done wrong, of every doubt we've ever had, of every insecurity we've ever struggled with, of every mistake we've ever made. He would rub it in our noses. He would shame us a little bit. He would condemn us a little bit. I think that's what most of us think. And yet I am so wholeheartedly convinced that the first words out of God's mouth would just be, I love you. I love you. Right now, right where you are, it doesn't matter how many doubts about me you have. It doesn't matter how many mistakes you've made. It doesn't matter how many insecurities you have. I completely and simply and wholeheartedly love you. Man, when we understand who Jesus is, when we understand how he feels about us, how do we not come alive? We can't misunderstand Jesus. But here's the second thing I think that we misunderstand a lot. I think we misunderstand discipleship. I think we misunderstand discipleship. A lot of us, if we can just be blunt, and I'm going to unpack it here in a sec and really explain it, define it, but a lot of us don't even really know what that means. But we, un- we misunderstand discipleship, and I think that that can hold us into this bondage of boredom. I was a youth pastor for about seven, eight years, and uh, when I was doing youth ministry, I would take this you know, group of students up to the Jesus Culture Conference almost every single year, and it was so fun. I mean, there was a few thousand people that'd be at these conferences, and their worship is just unbelievable, and so we'd just go, and we'd enjoy, and we'd stay in kind of a bougie hotel in downtown Sacramento. Like, we'd make an event out of it, and it was just fun, and so this one particular year, it was at UC Davis Pavilion, and uh, a couple thousand people there. The guy who was leading this one, the, the first night that we were at the conference, is a guy named Derek Johnson, and I'd actually met him a couple weeks before. We had lunch together, which is kind of funny, but we, we look similar. I'll say that. We're not like lookalikes, but we look similar. He's Scandinavian and tall and blonde, and we both had the undercut haircut, you know, hairdo thing. And, uh, and, and we were both wearing like tight black skinny jeans, denim jackets, lawn, like distressed shirts, and giving kids. It's the Christian outfit, you know what I'm saying? Like, you, come on, you know. 
you know, you go into a coffee shop and it's 110 degrees outside and some dude comes in with skinny jeans and a flannel and a giving key necklace and you're like, that dude loves Jesus. Like that's, that's a Christian outfit. So that, that's, that's kind of like what we were experiencing here at this conference. And, uh, and so the worship set ends and Derek just killed it. And, you know, and I decide, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk outside just for a second, get some fresh air. And, and all of a sudden this dad finds me. And, and I say he's a dad because he's with this. She, she looked like she was probably a sixth grade. But, but they were together. And, and he looks at me and goes, oh, my gosh, can we, can we talk to you for a second? I was like, Sure, you know, and, and so they come up to me, and he goes, my daughter would like to say a few things to you, you know, I was like, kind of weird, but all right, here it goes, and, and so she just starts pouring out her heart and soul to me, and, and you could tell she's like nervous, which is kind of sweet, but she was like super nervous, she was talking 100 miles per hour, not like one pause even in her like conversation, and she was just like, oh my gosh, every time I see you, I just feel God's presence, and I just, I struggle with discouragement sometimes, and then I see you, and I'm just like, oh my gosh, there's a hope in the future, you know, and I'm just like, the whole time, I'm like, who is this person? Like, how do I, like, how do I know her? My head starts getting big. I'm like, I didn't know it was that big of a deal. You know, I mean, I'm just like, I'm trying to figure it out, right? And, and she just doesn't stop 60 seconds worth, you know, of just this speech that's just wholehearted and pure and all that kind of stuff. And then, and then all of a sudden she says the worst word ever to me in that moment. She goes, so I just, I can't thank you enough for changing my life, Derek. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, she thinks I'm Derek Johnson. Like, it literally, it, it, it dawned on me in that moment. And, and this, is a, this is a huge ethical conversation. You know, talk about ethics. This is a big dilemma. I had two options in that moment. One, I could break her heart, tell her she just poured her heart and soul to a random stranger, and that I'm not Derek Johnson, but thank you, you know, for your kind words. Like, or... I could just look at her and say, you're welcome, and give her a hug. And don't judge me, because this is church. That's exactly what I did. I was like, I was like, you, you're so welcome. And she gives me this like, huge hug, and I'm just dying inside, like, please don't ask me for an autograph. Please don't ask me for an autograph. And then she runs away, and then I, I run to my youth ministry. We got like 100 kids or so there, and a bunch of youth leaders. And I look at them, I was like, all right, guys, we got to leave. And they're like, the speaker hasn't even gotten on the stage yet. I was like, I, I, I really don't care. We'll, we'll talk about it later. Like, let, let's go. And they're like, what happened? I pretended I was Derek Johnson. Let's get out of here. <laughs> like, it was just, it was not one of my finer moments. I'll say that. I share this story because I met so many people that equate Christianity to looking a certain way, to talking a certain way, to thinking a certain way. So many people that think that saying yes to Jesus entails and implies that we actually give up our creativity when we come to him, that we give up our individuality, that we give up our dreams, that we give up the things that make us ourselves, but that couldn't be further from the truth. God doesn't eradicate our uniqueness and our diversity when we come to him. He's the author of diversity. He loves and celebrates our diversity. He loves and celebrates our uniqueness. It's so beautiful to me that he has given you talents and skills that are specific to you that he has given you dreams and passions inside of you that are tailor-made for you. I want you to hear this and really understand it. Discipleship is not duplication. This discipleship is not duplication. Duplication means that we just create religious mini-me's, that we just kind of re reproduce ourselves, uh, exact replicas all over the place. That'd be terrifying, okay? Discipleship, on the other hand, means that we become more and more like Jesus. And the most beautiful thing about Christianity is that the more we become like Jesus, the more we discover who we were created to be. In fact, C.S. Lewis says it this way in his masterpiece, Mere Christianity. He says, the more that we let God take over, the more truly ourselves we become. Because he made us. He invented us. He invented all of the different people that you and I were intended to be. It is when I turn to Christ, when I give up myself to his personality, that I first begin to have a real personality of my own. How cool is that? Jesus created you. He wants you 
to be yourself. But I also want you to understand this, that you will never be fully alive, and you'll actually never be fully yourself until you find yourself in Jesus, until you hear who he says you are and what he's created you to do. One of the most intriguing verses to me in in the scriptures is actually just found in the postscript of one of Paul's letters. Paul wrote this letter to the church in Colossae. It's called Colossians. And in Colossians chapter 4, verse 17, he's giving all these instructions, saying all these, you know, like giving these shout outs to people, saying hello to a bunch of people. And then he says this right before signing off in this letter. He says, tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry that you received in the Lord. Another translation just says this, see to it that you finish the task that God gave you. You know what's so cool about that is I think Archippus knew exactly what Paul was talking about in that moment. We know that he was on Paul's missionary team. We also know that, that there's another book in the Bible called Philemon. He, uh, Philemon was actually Archippus's dad, so we know that through Scripture. But I think Archippus knew exactly what Paul was talking about, exactly what Paul was referring to. But you know what's crazy? We have no idea. And if you read scholars and theologians, they differ and have a thousand different guesses, but we have no idea what exactly Paul's referring to in telling Archippus to finish the task that God gave him. But I think that's so intentional. I think it's ambiguous because it forces us to actually ask the question ourselves, what's the mission God gave us? What is the mission that God gave you? What is the will of God for your life? What is the purpose, the unique destiny that God has actually created for you? It's so incredible. You see, I think some of us, we already know that, and a lot of us are actually living in that trajectory. We're actually pursuing the mission that God gave us, and it's so exciting and so awesome. I think a lot of us, we, we maybe know what that mission is. We maybe have these dreams and these desires that are burning inside of us, but we're so afraid to actually pursue them. We're afraid of giving up our comfort, relinquishing our comfort. We're afraid of stepping out into the unknown and pursuing that. I think a lot of us, if we're just being real, are still trying to figure it out. And I'll just be honest, that's totally okay. For a lot of people, it's just a lifelong journey of us trying to figure out, okay, Lord, what's what's your will today? What's your mission today? But here's the thing that we have to understand is that only by growing in your relationship with Jesus, a.k.a. discipleship, only by pursuing Jesus will you ever discover who you truly are and what you were created to do. And I promise that when you turn to Jesus with that question, oh, it's so much greater than anything you could ever come up on your own. It's incredible. So we can't misunderstand Jesus, both who he is and how he feels about us. We can't misunderstand discipleship, that God has actually given us each a unique and beautiful uh, mission in life. But here's the third thing I think that we often misunderstand that needs a little bit of correction. The, uh, the third thing is we misunderstand freedom. I think we misunderstand this whole idea of freedom. When I was in high school, I had this friend named Nora and she, she didn't have a dad growing up, and my dad's like super relational and personable, and so he kind of adopted her into our family, so to speak, and, and kind of became a dad to her. So she would hang out a lot, and, and we just, we, we, we uh, you know, our entire family just really cared about her. And so I get this phone call from, it's like 9.30 at night from Nora, and she's crying hysterically. And I, have, I, I can't even understand her, and I probably could have had more patience and more grace in the moment, but I was like, Nora, I'm not going to lie. You are making no sense right now. And she goes, the only thing I could like, actually understand from her was like, just give the phone to your dad. He cares. You know? And so I, I give the phone to my dad, and, and like 30 seconds later, my dad's like, we're heading to Nora's house. And I'm looking down at myself, and I'm like, I got Mario pajamas on and Ugg boots. Don't judge me, okay? They were cool at my high school. And so I'm just like... I, all right. You know, and so we, we, we get in the car. We start driving to Nora's house. And I get there, and my jaw drops. It was unlike anything I've ever seen. In fact, she was learning how to drive, trying to get her license. And she was driving in one night. And instead of hitting the brake pedal, she hit the gas pedal and drove her car through the house. 
And so I'm, I'm like, I'm trying to discreetly get my phone out so I can post on my Instagram story, you know what I'm saying? Because <laughs> it's just, it looks like a scene from a movie. And uh, that was a joke, by the way. I didn't post on my Instagram story. You guys are like, man, you are cold-blooded. That's savage, okay? I didn't do it. But, but we, we drive up, and it's just, it's unreal. The roof is caving in. The car is like halfway through the living room. I mean, it, it looked like a, it was a catastrophe. And so my dad, like, he opens up the door, and he runs to Nora, gives her this big hug, and is just like, Nora, it's okay. Like, everything's going to be okay. Like, you don't have to worry like it's all it's all gonna be okay and I don't something just like flipped inside of me and all of a sudden I just started to get really frustrated I'm not gonna lie I got more and more frustrated as we were there and about 45 minutes later we got in the car and we, we started driving back to our house and my dad could tell that something was up like that something was wrong something was bugging me and so he looked at me and he goes son what, what, what's going on why, why are you frustrated I was like dad I'm I'm pretty angry <laughs> and he goes well why like well, why are you angry I go dad if that was me like like if I drove the car through our house, I was like, the last words out of your mouth would be, it's okay, son, everything's gonna be okay. And he looked at me, I'll never forget his response. He goes, yeah, I know. <laughs> I was like, what? That's, that's so unfair, you know? And he goes, really, Caleb? Like, I, you're my son. He goes, I would hope that you wouldn't drive the car through the house. I've taught you better than that. And I'll never forget one, his line. He goes, he goes you're my son. I, I'm gonna hold you to a higher standard. To a higher standard. I know so many people, and so, so many young people too. We look at this book, and we think that God's just trying to hold us back. That God's trying to prevent us from living fully alive. Man, we couldn't be further from the truth. By giving us boundaries to live within, by holding us to a higher standard, God is not trying to prevent our freedom. He's trying to preserve it. God's not trying to prevent our happiness. He's trying to preserve it. God's not trying to prevent us from becoming fully alive. He's actually trying to ensure it. In fact, what Scripture says, it summarizes itself in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It says this, that Jesus set you free so that you could be free. How great is that verse? I love it. But Christ has set us free for freedom's sake. And then Paul says this, therefore, stand firm. Don't submit to the yoke of slavery again. Don't get stuck in the bondage of the past again. Live within these boundaries, and you will experience life to the fullest. You will be fully alive, and you'll never need to look back. You see, because Jesus is our creator, he actually knows the things that will steal our freedom from us. If we listen to our culture, what culture is going to say is money promises us freedom. But when we make it our focus, it only makes us slaves to greed. Culture tells us that beauty promises us freedom. But when we make beauty our focus, guess what? We just become slaves to vanity. Our culture is all about saying that licentiousness, it really is, it promises us freedom. And yet when we pursue that kind of life, guess what? We just become slaves of impulse. We just become empty inside. You see, only Jesus can set you free. Every other promise of freedom, every other offer of freedom, it, it has an expiration date. Only Jesus can set you free. And he wants you to be really free, and he wants that freedom to last. It's incredible. In the scriptures, I think it's so profound that uh, obedience and freedom are intrinsically connected. All throughout the scriptures. Like if you read through it, they are intrinsically connected. You cannot separate them. In fact, in Matthew chapter 11, we're told that when we obey Jesus, that we actually have freedom from stress and, uh, and restlessness. And in 1 John chapter 5, that when we obey Jesus, that we actually get freedom from fear and freedom from punishment. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, we're told that when we actually obey Jesus, that, that, that we actually have freedom from disingenuineness and this superficial love, that we have real love and real life and real freedom. Obedience and freedom are intrinsically connected. We can't separate them. 
So don't misunderstand Jesus. Don't misunderstand discipleship. Don't misunderstand freedom. And here's my last point for us. I'm almost finished. I think so many people misunderstand heaven. I think so many people misunderstand heaven. In sixth grade, I had to go to a um, family reunion. Emphasis on the term had to go, by the way. <laughs> I, li- I grew up in uh, Seattle, Washington, and the family reunion was like in the middle of nowhere, eastern Washington. It was a four and a half hour drive each way. And on top of that, I love my extended, or I, I love my like, um, uh, my-, my dad, my brother. I mean, I just, we're so tight. My extended family, how do I say it? They're tough, okay? It's, like, really hard. In fact, just a, a little window, like, my grandma, like, she, she died from a heroin overdose. Like, that's my family, okay? It's madness, just chaos. And so I'm driving over to hang out with these people for the entire weekend, and I'm just dreading every single second of it. Like, oh, my gosh, I got to, oh, this is going to be miserable. It's going to be so awful. And so the entire drive, even, the four and a half hours were just exhausting, and I was just miserable. And you're like, wow, thank you for sharing that story. I feel so uplifted. But here's the point. Here's the point of sharing it is that if you're not excited about the destination, you're not going to be excited about the journey. Man, if you're not excited about where you're headed, like the process of getting there is not going to be very much fun. I'll just be really honest with you. And if I could be blunt, too, so many people, they describe heaven in a way that doesn't get me excited at all. Can I just be real with you? I, I, let, me just, let me just be honest. I, I don't want to live on a cloud the rest of my life. Anyone with me? Like, I just, it doesn't sound fun, okay? And, and I, I don't, and I hope, God forgive me if this is bad, but I, I don't want to be in a choir for 24-7 for all of eternity. Like, has anyone else had that thought? I'm like, I'm like I love jamming to the worship team, but... Oh, you know, like all of eternity. And, and, and then I, I don't know if it's just me. I don't want to wear the exact same robe that every person in human history is wearing. You guys are judging. No, just crickets. I like fashion. Don't judge me, okay? <laughs> but here's the, here's the coolest thing. Here's the coolest thing is I think that those ideas of heaven, I think, I think we're missing something. In fact, C.S. Lewis says this in Mere Christianity. He says, we don't need to be worried by people that try to convince us that the Christian hope of heaven is ridiculous by saying that we don't want to play harps for all of eternity. All of the imagery in Scripture, harps, crowns, gold, is, of course, a merely symbolic attempt to express the inexpressible. And then he says this. I think it's kind of funny. He says, people who take these symbols literally might as well think that when Jesus told us to be innocent as doves, that he actually meant that we were supposed to lay eggs. <laughs> it's kind of funny. But so what do those images, what do those images actually communicate to us? I mean, think about the image of streets paved in gold, because that's in the book of Revelation. Streets paved with gold. I mean, I'll just be real. That sounds like the epitome of the bougie life. I mean, that sounds so cool, okay? Like, that's like Ritz Carlton times a million, you know? It's so sweet. But I don't think that's what Scripture's really getting at. I think what it's getting at is, hey, what you guys like consider the most precious material on this entire planet is dirt in heaven. I mean, it's communicating the abundance of life that we will experience in heaven. It's communicating the extravagance of life that we will experience in heaven, that it's so beyond anything that we could ever comprehend or even imagine. It's absolutely incredible. And I always get the question, too, like, is there going to be food in heaven? Of course there's going to be, okay? <laughs> one, of my, one of my favorite books, one of my favorite books is this book called Paralandra. And it's about a, and forgive me, it's super nerdy, so just track with me for like 30 seconds. But it's about a professor named Ransom who's actually transported to a different planet. The planet is essentially this recreation of paradise. And it's, the whole story is really a retelling of Genesis 1 and 3, like what if we never like had the fall? It's a very interesting story. But So Ransom just discovers this new planet, and he's kind of stumbling around and getting a feel for everything. 
everything. And he comes across this yellow fruit. And this is how the author describes this interaction. I think it's so profound. This is what he says. He says, it was so different from every other taste. So he, he, he obviously tasted it. It was so different from every other taste that it seemed mere pedantry to call it a taste at all. It was like the discovery of a totally new genius of pleasures, something unheard of among men, out of all reckoning, beyond all covenant. For one draft of this on earth, wars would be fought and nations betrayed. It couldn't be classified. He could never tell us, Ransom, when he came back to the world of men, whether it was sharp or sweet, savory, voluptuous, creamy or piecing. It's basically like, how, how would you describe it? He just said, not like that, was all he could ever say. Man, I think there's something so profound in that short little paragraph. It communicates that the, the pleasures that we will experience in heaven, the happiness that we will experience in heaven, the freedom that we will experience in heaven, the healing that we will experience in heaven, the restoration that we will experience in heaven, the relational depth that we will experience in heaven, both with God and with each other, is so beyond description. It's so beyond comprehension. It's so beyond imagination. I love the promise that we have about heaven in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. It says this, No eye has seen. No ear has heard, no mind has even imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Oh, if that doesn't get you excited, I don't know what will. It's incredible. And that's our hope. That's the eternal hope that we Christians have. We're not going to some boring place for all of eternity. We are going to life and life to the fullest. We think that God wants us to live fully alive in this earth, which he does. That's what my whole message is about. How much more so in heaven? How much more so? In fact, I think it's so profound that every single time that Jesus actually describes heaven throughout the scriptures, he's calling it a feast, a celebration, a party. In fact, there's this one scripture at the Last Supper. He's talking to his disciples, and he's like, the next time I'm going to have a glass of wine with you guys is going to be in heaven when we're partying together. I'm pretty stoked about that. Revelation chapter 21 says this about heaven. Look, God's dwelling is here with humankind. He will dwell with them and they will be his peoples. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. There will be no more mourning, crying, pain for all the former things that passed away. And then the one seated on the throne said this, look, I am making everything new. I am restoring everything, every hurt, every pain, every obstacle that you've ever navigated. Oh man, heaven is restoration. It's not mere consolation. It is complete restoration. It is perfection. It is fullness of life that we can never imagine. Joy of all joys, pleasure of all pleasures. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who, if I'll just say it, I realize I quote him every single time I'm on the stage now. Even if it's like 30 seconds on the stage, a Bonhoeffer quote's coming at you, okay? I love that guy. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he spent the last two years of his life in a, in a Nazi prison camp. The last couple of weeks actually traveling from one concentration camp to the next. And his letters uh, and papers from prison are probably is one of the most profound books I've ever read in my life. It's unreal. But on April 9th, 1945, I want to make sure I get that date right. I forgot. April 8th, yes, 1945. He preached his last sermon. And it was Isaiah 53. And it was this whole topic of by his wounds we are healed. And then the very next day, a group of soldiers actually came to the concentration camp, and, and Bonhoeffer knew exactly what it meant. And he turned to his fellow soldiers, and this is what he said. He goes, hey, could you relay a message to me? Could you, could you give this message to my best friend? And he gives him a few little, little, like, kind of smaller instructions, and then he says this. He goes, this is the end. For me, the beginning of life. Oh, the beginning of life. 
Man, can you imagine if we live this life on earth with that kind of expectancy, that kind of anticipation, that kind of excitement for the life to come? Man, if we have like an understanding of how great heaven is gonna be, if we live with that kind of expectation, we're going to live differently on earth. We're gonna forgive people a lot easier. I'll be real. Loving people is gonna be a lot more fun, a lot more enjoyable, and we're gonna be better at it. We're going to actually enjoy this life because we're gonna understand that we are free and where we are headed is beyond all comprehension. We're gonna be more generous with our time. We're gonna be more generous with our wealth. We're gonna spend our life pursuing things that matter, things that make a difference into eternity, not pursuing all these vain pursuits. Man, we're gonna understand that this entire life here on earth, in all of its beauties and all of its burdens, is a mere prelude to the greatest story, the most beautiful story that will last forever. C.S. Lewis, in the last Narnia book, it's called The Last Battle, he, uh, he says this, it's essentially a story about the end of Narnia and the beginning of heaven, and this is how he concludes it. He says, now at last, we are beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Man, I met so many people that are like, man, are we gonna get bored for eternity? Oh, are you kidding me? It's just gonna keep getting better and better and better and better. That's the hope that we have. I'll be real with you. Following Jesus is not always easy. It's not. I'm not trying to be up here and preach some superficial, fictitious kind of message and just get you all rallied up. Sometimes following Jesus is really hard. Sometimes he makes us walk through, as the scriptures say in Isaiah, the, the furnace of affliction. Sometimes things are confusing. I'll say this, following Jesus is not always easy, but it is always worth it. It is always worth it. And not only is it worth it, man, when we follow Jesus, we'll discover it's never boring. It may not always be easy, but, but it's never boring. If it's boring, we misunderstand something. So we have to understand Jesus, both who he is and how he feels about us. We have to understand discipleship, that it's actually about us pursuing the unique destiny that God has called us to. We have to understand freedom, that obedience is a gift that preserves, not a rule that presents or, or prevents. And then we have to understand heaven, that it is the culmination of life to the fullest. You see, when we understand those four things, oh, say goodnight. When we understand those four things, following Jesus is anything but boring, and we will become fully alive. Would you pray with me this morning?